An Air Canada flight is trying to land in Toronto when they have to go around. What caused this flight's second attempt at landing to fail? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Be forewarned, the cat and the dog are both shut out. So you might hear some whining in the background. Some He's scratching. Fine. We're also yeah. running the fan. Because it's that time of year again it's, where it's really freaking hot up here. It is toasty. So do not mind if you hear extraneous noises like that. Yes. That. He is fine. He just can't see us, so he's upset. He is upset. Also, we got a new patron. Yes, we did. Thank you to Chelsea. Thanks, Chelsea. Thanks. For being a patron. We appreciate your patronage. Yes, thanks. Um, we'll send out merch and ducks hopefully before we leave. If not, again, em- emphasis on panic. Panic. <laughs> you will get it. So you might en- get it after we get back. Okay. Hopefully Just, not. Uh, we'll try our best, but we also have to figure out when we're recording two Miranda episodes, the other mini episode, the next three, I think, full length episodes apart from the mini episodes, and then when we're editing all that stuff. And hopefully not dying before then. Oh yes. my god, I want to throw up just thinking. While about having full time jobs at the same time. Yep. And trying to have lives at the same time. Also, yep. So, please be patient with us. We do realize some of you may have put in your orders a while ago, or you became a patron a while ago. It will get there. We promise. We will get there. It'll happen eventually. Okay. With that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? Today we are covering Air Canada flight. 621. This was recommended by Joseph. Thank you, Joseph. Thank Thanks, you, Joseph. Joseph. Long-time yeah. listener. Mm-hmm. We have covered Air Canada recently. We did. This accident occurred on July 5th of 1970. Bit of an oldie. Ish. Ish. The report looks like it should be very old. <laughs> the report looks like it's from 1950. The report is so god-awful. I will complain numerous times about this report. As probably will I. But... I would too, but I didn't have to read it. It's and garbage. That's okay. This was a Douglas DC-863. The 63 variant of the DC-8. So this is a longer fuselage. Remember that. Yep. With a little bit bigger engines so that it can perform a little bit better. This one had the tail number Charlie Foxtrot-Tango India Whiskey. The DC-8 is a four-engine airplane. It was single-aisle. But at the time, this was the beginning of the jet age type aircraft. This is the bigger variant from what they had originally built. So it was built for everything from short haul to long haul. The airplane was capable of doing some pretty long flights. That said, this was a flight from Montreal to Toronto to Los Angeles. We will be talking about the Montreal to Toronto leg. Short. Yeah, in Canada. Yep. This is still a very, very common route, needless to say. They are not very far apart, but there are a lot of flights between those two cities to this day. Captain for this flight was Peter Hamilton. He's 50 years old. He had 20,990 hours total, of which 2,899 were on the DC-8, of which 197 were on the DC-863. So not a lot on this specific type of DC-8. Right. Do you know which DC-8 variant he flew previously? I don't, but if I had to guess, 
it's probably one of the 30 series or 10 series. I mean, those are the two earlier series. They also had the 50 series, which was the short. But I'm guessing it was a... There's also a 40 series. Yes. It could have been a 40. I'm not sure. It didn't say. It just said on the DC-8. And then it specified on DC-863. Okay. So, less than 200 hours on this variant. Yeah. You'll find that a common theme. Because the DC-863 was relatively new and was new to Air Canada. Mm. The first officer was Donald Rowland. He was 40 years old, so 10 years younger than the captain. He had 9,322 hours total, of which 5,626 hours were on the DC-8, so he by far and away had the most hours on the DC-8, of which 115 hours were on the DC-863. So he had a lot of hours on the DC-8, but not many on the DC-863. The flight engineer was Harry Hill. He was 28 years old. He had 1,284 hours total, of which... 1,045 hours were on the DC-8, so almost all of his hours were on the DC-8, of which 122 hours were on the DC-863. So we're all new here. Yep. In Montreal, 100 passengers and 9 crew boarded the flight, so there were 6 cabin crew. Okay. The flight departed Montreal at 7.17 a.m. local time, with the captain as the pilot flying and the first officer as the pilot monitoring. The flight climbed to cruising altitude and flew to the Toronto area uneventfully. The flight crew performed an, quote, in-range check, end quote, which is a routine check that they do 10 miles from Toronto, basically just letting air You're traffic control. You're in range. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're in range of the airport. They're letting air traffic control know. This is kind of an outdated procedure. It definitely doesn't happen. This, to me, sounds like something in a VFR flight you might do this in this that day That makes age. sense, because usually DMEs start between 15 and 10 miles. Yeah. So usually in a VFR flight, too, like you would call the tower for the first time at like 10 or 12 miles out. And they were heading southbound toward the airport. About eight miles from the airport, the flight crew began the before landing checklist. The checklist included arming the spoilers, which was purposefully omitted by the crew. At that time, they discussed the best option as to when to arm the spoilers. This is kind of a complicated thing we'll talk about later. Eventually, they agreed that the first officer would arm the spoilers upon flare for landing at Toronto. The DC-8 is a really peculiar airplane in this procedure, specifically. But they discussed what to do and essentially came to the conclusion that the first officer should arm the spoilers for landing as they were getting to the flare for landing. That way they would extend upon landing. The air traffic controller subsequently cleared the flight for landing on runway 32 at Toronto. The approach was carried out normally, and the aircraft was configured for landing. The weather was clear in Toronto that day. Actually, it was a pretty nice day across Montreal and Toronto that day. Though you wouldn't know that until you were like 50 pages, no, 90 pages into the report. Yeah, something like that. The aircraft crossed over the threshold of of runway 32 at Toronto. As the aircraft was at 60 feet, the aircraft suddenly began dropping toward the runway at an alarming rate. The captain rapidly advanced the throttles and pulled back hard on the control column. The nose rotated upward, but this did not keep the aircraft from striking the runway heavily at 8.06 a.m. and 36 seconds. It was a hard landing. It was a very hard landing. The aircraft was only on the runway for about a half a second before becoming airborne again. The aircraft began climbing away from the runway. 
The gear was retracted and the flaps were retracted. They informed the air traffic controller that they were going around to attempt another landing on runway 32. The tower, however, offered them runway 05 as an option for an immediate landing. Instead, as it was closer, but the flight crew informed them that they would continue back to runway 32 as they felt that there was no major concern with the aircraft. Were the was the gear down? At this point, yes. Yeah, when they landed, okay. yes. Yeah. At this point it's retracted. I'm surprised though. they didn't pop a tire. They hit that hard. You me know, too. when you think about it, yeah. Yeah, me too. Pretty tough tires. Well, I mean, I guess I didn't see anything about them not being popped. Me neither, but I don't. I feel think like it they would were. be a pretty important thing to put in the report. Yeah. Eh, let's keep going. In this case, I don't think that happened. But the tower agreed and then instructed the flight to contact the departure controller. Okay. The aircraft climbed to 3,100 feet. As they were climbing, the crew noticed that there seemed to be a loss of power on the right side of the aircraft. Do you get into what they mean by that? A bit. Okay. Not deeply, though. Investigators took that... When when the captain said, looks like we've lost power or something like that, he meant electrical power, mm-hmm. not thrust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to be clear. They discussed this, and there was some confusion over which engine might be the culprit. They debated if it was the number three or the number four engine, based on the information that they had on the instruments. But then they determined after some time that the trouble might be with the number four engine. They tried a little bit of troubleshooting before subsequently cutting off the fuel for that engine completely. They actually had lost power at that point from that engine. Yep. Sorry, that whole thing was really confusing and really poorly described. It is really poorly described throughout. On two separate occasions, they say they lost power. One time they meant electrical, the other time they're like, no, we actually like lost that engine. Lost thrust. Yes. Got it. So, I I should have told you prior, but it was... It is confusing. So, the first time they lost electrical power, which, what does that mean? Does that mean it stopped generating electrical power? Correct, yes. Okay, so for those of you who... Either this is your first time listening to our podcast, or maybe it's been a while since we've talked about it. Engines are the main power source yep. for most of the airplanes or electrical anything. Right. Just like so, the car engine, yeah, any car same thing. you own. Will control the electrical system in the car. Yep. Your radio, etc. And yep. as such, when you lose electrical power, you notice because like things on your dashboard start going wonky. Yeah. So when, it, when he said it the first time, <laughs> it's because... Some of, them, some of his instruments had failure flags. Right. Later, it was because, you know, like, you notice after a while if an engine stops working. Yeah. Altogether. Yeah. So, the first time, it was the electrical power. The second time, it was thrust. Yep. Welcome Got to it. the wonderful, terrible narrative that this entire report gave. Yep. Exactly. All of that said, this is a four-engine airplane. They still had three it's engines. Fine. It's fine. They had plenty of thrust and electrical power. Yes. In theory. Yep, to, to get them back to the airport. Yep. The flight crew agreed that this did not seem to affect the aircraft in a significant way and carried on with the go-around normally. However, around that time, witnesses on the ground saw smoke and flames coming from around the area of the right wing. A short time later, about two and a half minutes after touchdown on the runway, while still attempting to circle back, a huge bang, like an explosion, was heard and felt through the airplane, followed six seconds later by another, and then six and a half seconds later by another. 
The airplane suddenly began falling from the sky uncontrollably, nose down, very, very quickly, by the way. The airplane fell nearly straight nose down, striking the ground at a high velocity of 220 knots into a farm field. The aircraft disintegrated on impact, leaving an 8 to 10 foot deep crater with wreckage being thrown up to 300 feet from the impact point. And this was in what is now Brampton, near Toronto, but at the time Brampton was further away. It was also known as like two other things at the time. There's differing reports on where this crash actually was. I mean, it's known exactly where it was, but like what township this was in was varied. Mm, Makes sense. Borders change. Yes. Today, it's like at a major intersection. Awesome. (laughs) Where this was. So things have changed quite a bit. May or may not be haunted. You've been warned. Yep. Same goes for any crash site we cover, by the way. Pretty much, yeah. Probably haunted. Yep. The aircraft had crashed just 200 feet from a home where 10 people lived. It didn't say if all 10 people were home, but there were people home. We know that. The explosion from the crash destroyed the windows on the home, but nobody was injured. People nearby rushed to help while rescue services were on their way, but it was quickly apparent that nobody survived the crash. All 109 persons on board unfortunately perished in the accident. Well, they did hit the ground very hard, very Um, fast. Yes. It was 40 seconds from the time they lost control to the time they impacted. So, I hate, I know, you're going to say, I'll get into it. I don't care if I ask the question anyway. (laughs) The fire, was it coming from the engine that was shut off? Not exactly. No. I can actually decisively tell you no. Okay. Yep. Which means there was something else wrong. No. No. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) What? (laughs) You are on the right track, though. You you were. It's around the right engine. Is it the reason that engine stopped working? I'll get into it. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Let's just get into it right now, because this is. I left out some key stuff so that you can get really mad. Oh, is this where we do the Miranda rage warning thing? Yes, preemptively, probably a good idea. Christy's face is like, ah, probably. It's probably a good idea. Okay, this investigation was performed by the Ministry of Transport Aircraft Accident Investigation Division and then put together by a board of inquiry established by the Honorable Donald Campbell Jameson pursuant to Section 5A of the Aeronautics Act of 1952. And hence, this was a disaster because they didn't follow ICAO this was a non-ICAO compliant report. I Obviously, hate it. it was so out of order. It oh is my god! Awful. I just don't understand. Like, even in my head, putting it together that way. Like, why did they think that that? Dude, I don't know. They, for my portion, they retold the entire story six times, trying to explain each portion of what went wrong. Like. It's because transpired. It's because there were six separate teams of the investigation division. Oh, sweet Jesus. All working separately on this. But That's what's, a horrible idea. But what's frustrating about this is that they ex- like they literally wrote out the exact same thing every time, just adding on like another paragraph each time. And so it was like super frustrating trying to read this entire report and adding stuff and, back in. And my notes are vaguely based on the order of the report. So I am so sorry that's a jumbled disaster. The post-disaster disaster. Anyway, the 
Transportation Safety Board of Canada obviously was not in place yet. Obviously. They are way more put together. Bless them. Because this was awful. Anyway, both black boxes were recovered. Yay! And able to be read out, which is a feat considering that investigators for a lot of the wreckage had to dig through like 8 to 10 feet of dirt. Yeah, because it got buried. Yep. Uh, That's deep. That's deeper than a grave, for those of you who are wondering. Yep. Investigators determined that weight and balance was not an issue because of the flight documentation as well as information extrapolated from the fuel flow parameter of the flight data recorder. Rather than go into the nitty-gritty mechanical parts now, let's skip forward to the investigation. Let's skip forward in the investigation and go to the derived flight sequence from the FDR and CBR. It's the only way that some of this is going to make sense. I think, maybe, we'll see. I'm not even sure. Are you going to get into the reason why they had trouble landing to begin with? Yes. Okay, cool. I was going to be my next question, but I figured that you'll cover it. So this is now, I'm retelling the story with CBR and FDR bits thrown in there and answering a couple of like glaring holes that Nick left in the story. It'll answer a lot of your questions and then I'll get into the whys that it caused that. Great. Cool. Investigators delved into what transpired in the cockpit for the last 10 minutes and 16 seconds of the flight, starting at the in-range check, which was followed by the before-landing check, which is where things deviated from routine. Oh, good. Seven minutes and 18 seconds before touchdown, the captain called for the in-range check, which was completed in 28 seconds. Four minutes and 23 seconds before touchdown, the before-landing check was called for, but before starting it, the captain and first officer began discussing how to arm the ground spoilers, specifically if they should be armed on the flare or on the ground. They agreed to arm them on the flare because they had previously agreed to do that whenever the first officer was flying and extend them on the ground when the captain was flying. The way you're looking at me tells me that you know how spoilers actually work What on any normal yeah. modern airplane. I was like... On the f- why are you waiting till so late? The whole point of the spoilers is to give you drag. Okay, yes. slow so, down. So, so so these spoilers in this time, okay, on this airplane, were not graceful. If you had the spoilers armed going into it, it was going to be like a kablam landing. Okay, if you wanted a nice buttery smooth landing, you did not arm the spoilers till later. Okay, and there's a couple of reasons for that. We'll get into later. Now, their previous agreement, because they had flown together prior, yes, was that when the captain is flying, the first officer would arm them on the ground. Okay. This is different because this time he's doing it on the flare. Okay. Okay. So they're, they're, he's doing the opposite of what they planned for. The opposite of what they've done together prior. Okay. Now, okay. mind you, they hadn't flown together in over a month. So they're like, okay. mm, let's switch it up. We haven't flown together in a while. Let's do it this way. I feel like that's a bad idea. You're right. Anyway. <laughs> I feel like when you deviate like that, it's probably not a good thing. There are probably people already screaming. So This was an agreement between just the two of them having flown several times and together. And flight crews all over Air Canada are making their own agreements. No! Why? Why is it not a standard operating procedure? And there is one. This, this is, and neither of those scenarios is that. Right. We'll talk about this. You're supposed to arm the spoilers during the before landing check. Not on the flare, not on the ground. You're supposed to do it like five minutes ago. And there's a big reason why they don't. And I will... Okay. We'll get there. So the crews did all the items on the before landing check, except on the spoilers. Okay. Two minutes and a second before touchdown, the second officer called out spoilers to go and the board's clear. 
Okay, that means all the checklists are done except for that one step. We all know that that one step isn't done. Okay, cool. Three and a half seconds before touchdown. The captain said, okay, indicating that the first officer would arm the ground spoilers. So the first officer went to arm the spoilers, which is usually done by lifting the knob of the spoiler actuating level. But instead, he pulled the lever, which immediately deployed the spoilers in the air. They still had 60 feet. Okay, I guess I'm confused about the difference between the two. So arming a spoiler means that the spoilers will deploy when the wheels touch the ground. It will automatically then deploy the lever to full. What he just did was just deploy the spoilers. Oh, and then it just went... Yes. There was like, no more lift, down. Straight down. The flight immediately lost lift, since that's what spoilers are designed to do. Yep. They had a change in vertical acceleration of losing half a G, indicating a loss in lift. The captain yelled, no, no, no. While the first officer yelled, sorry, sorry, Pete. He made a mistake. They both realized the mistake. Immediately, though. Literally as he was doing it. Because it's such a different motion. It's lift versus pull. Yeah. Oh, that was the thing I was worried. I was confused. So you lift it to arm it. You pull it to deploy it. So those of you who may be as confused as I am, because I was like, I don't get it. Pulling it is pulling it towards yourself. Lifting it is lifting it straight up in the air. Yes. Yes. So when you lift it straight up, so basically it's in a locked position normally. When you lift it straight up, it's got this little, like, armed detent where it sits. And then from there, the airplane can automatically pull that lever all the way open. Right. He, however, pulled it straight up and all the way down. Yeah. Rather than into the armed position. And we'll get more into the whys of that later. Yes. At this point, they were 60 feet above the ground, and then they weren't. Uh, Their descent rate increased to 24 feet per second. Yeah, so they just hit the ground. Until the captain applied full power and pulled up, decreasing the rate of descent at impact to 18 feet per second. Which is still pretty heavy. They still struck hard. As a result, you ready? You ready to have all your questions answered? Here's why everything went so wrong. Mind you, Nick lies. The number four engine, its pylon, attachment angles, wing plating, etc. all tore off. Oh no! And a large hole was left in the bottom of the number four alternate fuel tank. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. And I don't lie. This still doesn't happen very often. And also, the only reason it happened here is because they slammed it on the runway. Yes. Normally, engines don't just fall off for no particular reason. So they were completely flying without the number four engine. You are correct. And they didn't know that. when they lost power, it's just they didn't have an engine there. It was gone. Okay. Completely. (laughs) Didn't anyone see that they didn't have an engine? Here's the thing about that. No. Actually, well. What about the giant engine that would be by the run? Let me resume. Oh, and the number three engine pylon had some bolts shear off. So they almost lost... Uh, That's called foreshadowing. Let's move on. Great. The impact force was the equivalent of 3.4 Gs, according to the FDR. Which is a little bit heavier than what it took to fold the landing gear on Britannia that we talked about two weeks ago. Which is the one that comes out tomorrow. However, (laughs) this is not a reliable value as the accelerometer in the FDR is only meant to measure accelerations that build up gradually. So one expert witness said that the acceleration may have exceeded the 3.4 Gs. Probably, and that is heavy. Douglas the manufacturer, said that based on the information given, 5Gs would not be an inappropriate estimate. That's a lot. (laughs) Ow. So, okay. I realize that I understand why they did a go-around. 
Uh huh. But also, couldn't they have just stopped on the runway? You would think. If they just no, and I will get to that in a second. Okay. Actually, in like two paragraphs. Give me a minute. Great. So, an engine's gone. There's a fuel leak, and now they're climbing to 3,100 feet. And there's fuel streaming out the back. Right. And it's on fire. Yeah. They communicated about making a circuit and reattempting to land. And the tower offered runway 05 just to be helpful. Yeah. And the crew said no. Well, they didn't know they didn't have an engine, so... The tower at this point did not know the extent of the damage. Investigators went into hypotheticals. Is there anything the crew could have done after impact, after the initial impact, I should say, that would have increased their chances of survival? I'm going to read a quote from the report, but some of the lingo is a little bit misleading. When they say overshoot procedure, that means go around procedure. Okay. Which was real confusing for a hot second. Quote, a pilot's training for a hard landing. (coughs) (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait is to do one of two things. Either take action for overshoot or recover from the bounce and continue the landing, as you okay, suggested. Okay, yes. In this case, having already initiated overshoot procedure, the al- the other alternative for a hard landing procedure is no longer open to the captain. It just bothers I, me. Well, I figured, because he had already started the go-around, I understand that. I understand why he initiated the go-around. I was just saying, would it have been an option to just complete the landing with if they had not started that procedure? Which the answer is yes. Maybe. But also, probably should have done it go around anyway. Yes. I know it's silly, but man, it bothers me so much that they use overshoot. Oh my god. Because okay. overshoot's completely different. It is a different anyway. thing. So, continuing the quote. There, there was jargon in there that was not part of the quote, just to be clear, in case you didn't pick up on that. Continuing. As to this, it, it should be noted that there was filed a document. <laughs> a document <laughs> filed. Got it. Entitled, Landing Distance if Pilot Elected to Abort Takeoff. The calculations on this document are completely irrelevant, so why'd you bring it up, to the situation that existed at this stage. Having initiated overshoot procedure and following the hard landing, to suggest that the captain should have kept his aircraft on the ground at that time is unrealistic. At touchdown, the aircraft was in configuration for overshoot procedure in that takeoff power was on all four engines and the aircraft had been rotated to a takeoff altitude. In short, therefore, this document analyzed a course of action which would have been exceedingly difficult to execute and would have been contrary to all the captain's training and experience. End quote. He did the right thing. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, a go around makes sense. I just anticipated you would ask that question, but as always, I'm really bad at timing when you ask these questions. <laughs> it's fine. So, the crew didn't have a way to know the full extent of the damage. They couldn't see the engine, lack thereof. Well, and obviously they didn't fly by the tower. No. And their instruments weren't the most helpful. The best indicator was how hard the landing was. And even then, they didn't have experience to say, oh, the landing of, oh, this hard of a landing would mean this much damage. Like, who has that knowledge? Right. Based on the CVR, the captain and first officer assumed no substantial damage as they intended to come back around, saying, quote, oh, we'll go around, I think we're all right, end quote, which the first officer then echoed to the tower. Right. They figured out that they had a power loss on the right side, electrical power, but weren't concerned. They spoke of knowing that they could safely come back with three engines, if it came to that, or even just two. So they shut down engine four, you know, once they figured out it was the culprit. Yeah, the missing engine? They didn't know but they shut it down. Good, good job. But that whole process took a bit of time, more than what I just said. Right. First, the captain announced 
and electrical power loss. As he saw, his instruments began to have failure flags at the decrease in power. 47 seconds later, the second officer announced a loss of electrical power from the number four generator. We knew that, thank you, but he confirmed which engine it was. Okay. And then a full 53 seconds later, the captain announced a power loss to engine four upon finally having an opportunity to review his instruments and see that the exhaust gas temperature, N2, fuel flow, and N1 were at zero. Yikes, there was no longer an engine there. I didn't know that, but I mean, good call. I mean, using the big brain took a little while to use the big brain, but... Okay. Getting now, it figured out. The yeah. first officer did question if it was engine three, but finally agreed it was engine four. He wondered if it was engine three because that engine was showing erratic and below normal fuel flow. It's probably because it was almost off the aircraft. Now, that's a lot of time. It was like two minutes. That's a, that's a really long time. But investigators believe that this is what a seasoned, well-trained crew would have been expected to do, especially given that there were no indications of fire. True. Well, and there was no indication anything was wrong. My next question which you probably don't even have an answer for, because we haven't really talked about anybody on board. There were passengers on board the I aircraft. I have no idea. They would... I, would, I don't I know. feel like... Nobody said anything about that. Someone would look out the window and go, um, there's we, fire on the wing. We can certainly assume that the passengers saw that. But no one told the flight deck. Which is where we get into the, please tell somebody when you see something like that. To be fair, when something catastrophic like that happens, you would think they would know. Well, I oh okay. Listen, I know we talk about that because and that that is assumption bias, though. It is. Don't assume they can't see the wings from the cockpit. We'll, okay, we'll get we'll circle back. I to was that gonna in a say minute. we'll get to it, but they're not the only ones that probably assumed that. We will circle back to that, unlike they did. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dang. I know. Shots fired. So there were no indications of fire until the three explosions. Just before, there was difficulty in the number four engine controls. I wonder why. Either the power lever or the high pressure cock, which is what you use to cut off fuel. I understand how that sounds. Give me a break. (laughs) Get your mind out of the gutter. I had to Google that and pray that nothing Nothing bad would pull up. (laughs) Good times, good times. The right thing did pull up. Just to be clear. (laughs) (laughs) See, even Milo's laughing. And then the captain said that number three was jammed too. And then all four were jammed. There go all your theories. Then the explosions happened. And the number three fuel flow and RPM increased. And then dropped to zero. Because the engine separated. Oh, the third engine fell off. Sick. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I'm nervous laughing. I'm not really laughing. I don't know what's happening. Um, The hydraulic pressure for the ailerons and rudder dropped to zero. You know, because now we have two engines missing. Yeah. The FDR reflected that the left flap decreased one and a half degrees, the right one increased three degrees, the right spoilers deployed, and there was a main undercarriage unsafe signal. Investigators determined all of those were probably erroneous yeah. readings. Considering there's two engines gone. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you know, like somewhere along the way the FDR is getting electricity. Electricity from Ever- yeah. the engine. This. Um I still don't know what the three explosions were. I'm guessing one of I'm guessing one of them was the engine falling off. No. No? Oh, good. I don't remember now. I'm s- give- <laughs> it's quite literally just almost exactly what you think it give, is. Give give me some time, okay? The plane began to dip, 
and a louder explosion was heard, and then the sound of metal tearing before impact. Ugh. So, everything after the touchdown was done well, and as it could be expected by a well-seasoned and experienced crew. That was actually determined. They did everything correct after impact. Right. The question we asked earlier, could ATC have told them? Well, the controller was about a mile as the crow flies from where the impact happened, and he saw dust and debris, because that's about all you can see from a mile away. And he assumed that the DCA had all kinds of bells and whistles that would tell the crew what kind of damage they had, so when they said, I think we're all right, he took them at their word. Oh, God. Well, okay, but he's so far away, you can't blame him. He can't see anything. Right. Also, I didn't mention this. I don't think. Lord knows at this point. But at some point when the crew was trying to contact either a departure or approach, they said it wrong at one point, so now I'm confused. They were contacting a different controller and were like, we're going to come back in and land on runway 3-2. And they're like, no, you're not. There's debris on that runway. You're going to have to use this other runway. Mm -hmm. That should have been a sign. We, yeah, we just landed on that runway and there was no debris there. That's because it was your fault. That's because it was you. Okay, so let's talk about spoilers. Since we know them to be the source of the issue, since they deployed 60 feet above the runway. Quote, the spoiler, as its name implies is an aerodynamic control device designed to spoil <laughs> or disrupt the smooth flow of air around a streamlined body, such as an aircraft wing, with the object of increasing the drag or reducing the lift, or both. It usually takes the form of a flat plate hinged to the wing's upper surface that may be projected into the airstream at the will of the pilot, end quote. In case, I probably should have put that earlier, I'm sorry. It pops up probably seen them or you'll look for them now yeah you definitely see them when the when the wheels touch the ground you'll see these guys pop up yep that's they 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 deploy they help slow the aircraft down yep they they act like kind of a parachute it's like similar to what you would think a parachute would do yeah their primary function on the ground when they're fully deployed is to press the main landing gear into the runway and add to drag. provide that pressure. It adds drag, of course, to the air, but it also provides pressure to the landing gear to start using brakes. Because then, like I said, the aircraft will slow down. Yep. Now, one question you may have is, why on earth would you have a system that allows the spoilers to be deployed in the air? There's a couple of reasons, actually, according to the report. I They're question them, but... Very commonly used in the sky these days. We'll get there. Oh, well, this report... This both, report... It both thought so and didn't think so. Well, there's a particular reason why, and what they don't clarify is what they mean by that. Okay, so let's go into the reasons. If you want to descend quickly with noise abatement protocols, as in not be super loud when you're descending, use your right. spoilers. Turns out that requires no engine power. Yeah. You can do that. Also, if you're landing in a deep valley where you have to descend very steeply... To get into the, yeah. It has also been used for a rapid descent in an emergency following loss of cabin pressure at high altitude. Yep. Makes sense? These are all reasons to deploy spoilers in flight. But across the board, the most common use is during landing. They are one of the first mechanisms to deploy after touchdown as there is a delay in the activation of thrust reversers. Spoilers, in combination with wheel brakes, help slow down the plane to avoid a runway overrun, as we have discussed. Many times. Yep. That being said, there are five spoilers on each wing. 
The two inboard on each side are ground spoilers and are only activated on the ground. The other three may be used in flight or on the ground and are linked to the ailerons. During cruise flight, all spoilers are inoperative. At low air speeds, they become automatically energized hydraulically when the landing gear extends, so that's when they get all of their hydraulic pressure back. And the three outboard spoilers, which are linked to the ailerons, assist in providing lateral control at low speeds. Like, assistant ailerons. If the pilot wants to have all ten spoilers extend, he can do so either by grasping the lever on the control pedestal and pulling it, or by lifting that same lever to engage an electromechanical actuator. The first option, pulling it, is a near-instantaneous event, whether in flight or on the ground. As we talked about, that's what happened here. The electromechanical actuator will extend the spoilers when the landing gear contact the ground. This process is known as arming the spoilers. Now, things get a little interesting. On the earlier DC-8, the 40 series, it took a force of 70 to 90 pounds to pull wow. the spoilers mm-hmm. to extend the spoilers in the air. That's a lot of force. Because you shouldn't do it. Right. This Unless airplane, it's an emergency. Right. This airplane was built in a different way than modern airplanes where they wouldn't use them to slow down while in the air. Mm-hmm. But in most modern airplanes today, there is a flight detent for these where they can deploy them at a partial deployment mm-hmm. to literally just bring the airspeed of the aircraft down. Right. On descent. Now on the 60 series, which is where the accident aircraft is one of them, it varied considerably with many of them having a pull force of 45 pounds or less. One that was tested only had a pull force of 30 pounds. That's considerably less than the last series. Yes. The same test also showed that it only took a displacement of a couple inches to do it. You only had to pull back a couple inches. Another difference between the two. On the 40 series, it was a pull motion to arm the spoilers. To arm them. Mm -hmm. On the 50 and 60, it is a lift motion to arm and a pull motion to instantaneously activate. Do you see a problem? Yeah, because of the inconsistency, he might have thought he was arming them because that's what it was on the other series aircraft. Mm -hmm. And on this one, it immediately deploys them, and you don't need as much force to do so, so it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So, that's what we're looking at here. Investigators comment, like 20 pages later, that quote, one would expect a guard on the actuating lever of some kind, such as a gate, which would have, would, which would have to be removed by a separate and deliberate manual action. Safeguards of this kind are common practice in aircraft design. With wing flaps, where a rapid retraction would produce an abrupt loss of lift, for example, the retraction mechanism is deliberately designed either to operate slowly and to fail safe, or the actuating lever is faded, I don't think that's the right word I typed, so that flap retraction is accomplished in a series of stops, and to proceed from one step to the next requires a separate deliberate action by the pilot, end quote. You can't accidentally do it. Right. I hate to say this, but... I feel like this is a common thing with Douglas series aircraft and McDonnell Douglas series aircraft things and then just, Boeing series <laughs> aircraft. Things that just should have been designed better. Well, fail safe. Taken more time to yeah. design. Because this also brings into question, and I'm sure you'll get into it later, 
of did they train for the differences between the two series aircraft? I won't get into it. <laughs> exactly. But it's like the whole thing that we talked about in that post episode with the Boeing airplanes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to listen to that, I highly suggest you go check it out. It was a few weeks ago. Uh, like, it just reminds me so much of that, which is horrible because guess who took over? Boeing. Boeing. Eventually, McDonnell Douglas. So this is not the first time this has happened. Nope. The most Shocker. ill-fated of sentences. Nothing had been this catastrophic before. Right. But Air Canada pilots had previously expressed concern about the new spoiler system. On the 40 series, arm spoilers would mechanically extend when the nose gear touched the ground. The new 50 and 60 series still had that as a backup, but they primarily used the main landing gear as the trigger and would use an electromechanical system to extend the spoilers. To some extent, this makes sense. The spoilers would activate sooner, so the stopping distance would be shorter. It also makes sense because this airplane was so much longer that it took a lot longer for that nose landing gear to come down. Yeah. Versus the shorter original versions of the DC-8. But the pilots had reported that when this system is armed, by raising the control lever in the cockpit, the rotation of certain combinations of the main wheels at a speed of approximately 700 to 800 RPM will generate the electrical signal, trigger the actuator, and extend the ground spoilers. End quote. Just from the gear rotating. Now, I'm not so sure when that would happen, and Nick and I can't quite figure it out, but it shows a precedent for unintended deployment. My only guess is when they would first deploy the landing gear, if they're at a higher rate of speed, there's some potential. That the wheels would spin in the air? I guess. Normally you have the equal and opposite reaction concept where it's round. Mm -hmm. The air is flowing over both sides of it, so how could it possibly spin? Dude, I don't know. Point is... There's been concern about them already deploying in flight. Okay. From evidence, quote-unquote, it was found that Air Canada Ground Training School didn't know that DC-8's ground spoilers could even be deployed in flight by pulling on the actuating lever, armed or not. But I pointed out earlier that Air Canada pilots had previously expressed concern about this. Air Canada didn't tell their own ground school who was training their pilots that this could happen or how devastating it could be. And at this point, some Air Canada pilots knew and some didn't. So there's no one is, has consistent anything. You know right. who's at fault for this, though, right? Is Douglas. Mm-hmm. For not telling Air Canada there was a different kind of spoiler system on this new series aircraft as compared so to they, the old series aircraft. So they knew that it was a different spoiler system. That they were training on. They were training that you arm it by lifting it. Okay. What they didn't know was that it could deploy in flight. That's what was different. That's what was inconsistent in everyone's knowledge base. Because you have some pilots who are already flying who know about it. Some don't. And everyone who's coming in new has no idea. I I still feel like it's a Douglas problem. Because Douglas overall is the one who designed that aircraft to do that. Period. End of story. Right? And even if you designed it as a failsafe, because for whatever reason, they mm-hmm. don't deploy on their own, okay, but you need to make sure that all the companies you are selling these planes to know that that is an option. So from what I understand, it did say something along those lines in the manual. The issue here comes is that 
the operators who are making their manuals based off the manufacturing manual were making changes from the manufacturer manual and weren't including that information. And even, so Air Canada is who we're speaking of in particular, even other Canadian airlines weren't having the same manuals between airlines. So that's, and it is the Ministry of Transport's job to review that, to ensure that Air Canada's manual matches Douglas's manual, manual, but also matches WestJet's. I don't know if they were a thing at the time. I don't know my Canadian airline history, but matches WestJet, matches Air Transport, whoever, to make sure that the information across the board matches and matches Douglas. What I do know is TransCanada existed at the time, and they also had DC-8s, and they also had a crash between Montreal and Toronto, but it wasn't from the same thing. Point is, there was a lack of oversight. Now, I could be wrong about Douglas having that in their manual, but... I mean, you'd have to look up the manual for the... Ser- I mean, I'm not saying... It probably said it somewhere in this godforsaken report, and I'm... I, I realized that it was a giant <laughs> mess. Listen, I get it. It's just knowing Douglas's history and understanding that there were oversights like this that were happening with, with aircraft. Oh, yeah. That they designed it, but they didn't put it in a manual or they didn't make it absolutely like, hey, just so you know, this happens because we f***ed up. Like, it happened with the DC-10, too. There was stuff that was happening with the DC-10 that they didn't realize, I guess Douglas didn't realize that they made it that way. And then there were problems, like with the, you know, the right. the cargo yeah. door being a problem, you know? Refer to episode insert Who here. knows where, know. in the past, last year, some point. Yeah. That's my point, is that I'm not saying it is Douglas's fault. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me if it yeah, was Douglas's that's fault. So. That yeah. long-winded explanation to Good say. Time. Going on, I'm still not done. In case you're wondering, investigators discovered what the explosions were and what they damaged and why it caused them to crash. Because they were doing fine. They were doing fine. The first uh, explosion blew out large sections of the wing above and below the fuel tank. Makes sense. The number three engine and parts of the wing separated and the hydraulic pressure to the rudder and aileron went to zero. The second explosion blew off the wing tip. Oh. Yeah, you, you, you can't do a whole lot. Nope. Uh, the third explosion blew off the top of the wing. So they were flying without a wing. Yep, basically. Or so, very, very, very minimal wing. Uh-huh. So for those of you who don't know, it's the shape of the wing that makes, you know, it, it have lift. Have if, light. You, if you lose the top of the wing, it's uh, you have no lift now. Congratulations. Uh, you're a paperweight. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. It was pretty much determined that almost the entire left or right wing was just... Gone. That's horrifying. Why is the question. So, remember that 3.4 Gs I mentioned earlier that was probably more like 5 Gs? That would have been more like 6.5 to 7 Gs on the engines themselves, which those pylons are not designed to endure. Why would they? Yeah. In fact, it's actually exactly 7 Gs that the engines were rated to separate at. It's, it's the point at which the shear bracket at the front spar would fail. It was designed to do that. When you're designing things that are eventually maybe going to fail, you have to design them so that they fail in a less catastrophic way. Right. So it was designed so that the shear bracket at the front spar would fail first, and then the bolts would fail front to rear in the horizontal attachment. 
That way the engine would separate safely. And that's not what happened. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Some of the rear bolts didn't fail in sequence, so the wing plating failed instead, which made the floor of the fuel tank separate. Evidence shows that the engine also didn't separate directly downwards, as it was designed to, but also had a side force component, which made it fail not cleanly. So there's now more fuel leaking than was even planned for. Subsequently, a bundle of electrical wires that normally connects to the engine was severed in the pylon, and the insulation burned the copper ends fused and began to spark. Awesome. Uh-huh. You know where they're uh, hanging? In the fuel stream. Yeah. Directly in the fuel stream. It is of note, I think. Maybe not. They said it is. That the fuel that was used was JP4 and not JP1, a.k.a. kerosene. Which I guess is important because JP4 is more volatile, though that didn't really matter because either one would have caught fire at this point in these circumstances, but they felt the need to point it out. Yeah, they, they even wrote in the report that both types of fuel would have been on fire. It didn't matter. Awesome. But they were upset that JP... I don't know. Investigators acknowledge that designing an engine attachment structure is very difficult, especially when designing it to not just endure high loads, but also to fail a certain way should those loads be exceeded. And the loading to be expected comes literally from all directions. Wind gusts, crazy maneuvers, landing on rough runways, and any combination thereof. That being said, they still say that the designer, <clears throat> Douglas, had the capacity to design a system that wouldn't involve the failure mode having the potential to rip off the wing plating. It also should have been possible to design the wiring to the engine such that should the engine fall off, the wires wouldn't be exposed to leaking fuel. Yeah. Yes, it's hard to design it, but you still could have done better. Yep, needless to say, there's a lot that could have been done better. Okay, I think I'm done now. <laughs> okay. It was a lot. That I know. Lot. And I have no pictures to supplement. So with that, we're going we're gonna to take a short break. We'll uh, come back with the normal. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Okay, we're back. Good God. Sweet Jesus. Much like all things with this report, nothing is normal. There are findings. A lot of them. Some of them are like normal findings. Some are not. This was fine. This was fine. Weight and balance was not a problem. Right. The aircraft was properly certificated. They right. all had valid medical lights. I don't know. Yeah, basically. Things like that. But then there were other things. And then there was the rest of it. So we're not going to do all of these because they had quite a few pages, actually, of these, but I'm only going to do a handful. They're kind of long-winded, though. You'll kind of see how this report actually played out when I start reading some of this. They found that there was a design defect in this aircraft in that it was possible, by a single movement of the actuating lever, to cause the ground spoilers of this aircraft to be deployed while it was in flight with its undercarriage down, thereby destroying a major portion of the lift on the wings. So... When I said earlier that there was a caveat 
to it being able to be used in flight. It's not that they necessarily didn't know they could be used in flight. What they didn't know is that it could be used in flight with the gear down. Mm -hmm. Because so many airplanes, granted, this was the beginning of the jet age. And jet age aircraft, the beginning of the jet age aircraft, were not designed to have the spoilers used very often in flight, for any particular reason. But one thing that was understood pretty early on is that when the gear was down, it wouldn't let them actuate. Mm -hmm. That was at least most pilots' understanding. In that it wouldn't actuate until they touched down. Right. It would only allow them to arm it. Well, that wasn't the case with the DC-863. So, that's why there was a big issue. Oh, that's why it wasn't everything else? It was everything else, too. But... But also... Also, this was a big portion of it. Totally off track from that. If only the weather was not a factor. <laughs> no, because they wow. mentioned it like 80 pages in. Sorry, I'm right. really bitter about this report. They, yeah, they did mention it like 80 pages in. And the reason why that comes up is because, again, this kind of like Britannia, this depicts a little bit like low-level wind shear or a downdraft of some form. Where they just suddenly slammed into the runway, dropped yeah. to the runway, but the crew knew exactly what happened when it happened, so there wasn't really much of a. I mean, question. at least they knew. At least they weren't completely lost. Right. Mostly. Right. Now for a long one. We found that there was equivocation, inaccuracies, and misinformation in the instructions in the manufacturer's aircraft flight manual, FAA-approved, and in the manufacturer's aircraft operational manual, and in the Air Canada aircraft operating manual as to when and how it was possible to cause the ground spoilers to be deployed. Specifically, among other things, in none of these manuals was there any warning that the ground spoilers of a DC-8 aircraft could be deployed while such an aircraft was in flight with its undercarriage down. In addition, and on the contrary, in two of these manuals, namely the manufacturer's DC-8 operating manual and the Air Canada DC-8 operating manual, it is erroneously stated that the lever is prevented from going to extend while in flight by a mechanical system. So the pilots even believed that there was a failsafe in place. Was that, that was Douglas's a stop. manual that said it that? It said that, yes. It was Douglas and Air Canada, because they copied Douglas. See? 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 Douglas? See? I'm glad you found it, because I couldn't. Nope. Mm-hmm. So they thought there was supposed to be a failsafe for this. Pilots immediately knew that it wasn't. And they had known this, actually. I mean, this crew had known this. This is why they were... Discussing who would do what when. Right. Got because it. they figured by arming it early, there was erroneous reports that it could go up. One part, could go up. One, one part I want to know is the certification records. That. That. Because devil's advocate, maybe even Douglas didn't know. Right. True. To be fair, though, that also means they're not testing the aircraft as much as it should, having it go two directions. And that falls on the FAA. Because the FAA is the one who certifies them. Yes. So this, we're just, we're walking in circles now at this point. It's, it's your fault. It's your fault. It's everyone's. And can I be honest? Like the way that we design spoiler systems now, so much smarter. Well, I would hope so. I mean, 2020 hindsight, of course, but. I mean, the airplane's smart enough now anyways that when the gear is down, no, they won't deploy. Yeah. For one. Uh, two. We also now have ground air sensors. Mm-hmm. Right. Basically. When the aircraft, there's a couple of ways that they do this, but rather than going off of the wheel RPM, which that's some crap. I'm sorry, that was an awful idea. I don't think that was intentional. I don't know, but if that's the way they censored this, God, that was stupid. No, it was censored on, 
having the entire weight of the aircraft push on the wheels. Right. And that's what I would think, but then how would the RPM make that happen? Uh, an electrical failure. Right. It, uh, uh, dude, uh, mm. Mm. It was just a bad design. So the way that we do it now with the air ground sensors that just detect when the airplane's, you know, actually on the ground. Well, it, right. it makes it so that there it's a double condition. You need to fulfill both conditions. Right. The airplane has to have weight on the wheels as well as, like... Indicate that is is on the ground. Yes. If you want to learn more about the air ground sensor, I defer you to the 2008 South Carolina Learjet crash. Yes. We talk about it a lot more. Yes, we do. Moving on. They found that Air Canada ground school instructors of student pilots did not know that the ground spoilers activating lever could be pulled back manually to cause the ground spoilers to be deployed in flight in the DC-8 series aircraft. That's just amazing. Yeah, they just didn't know. I mean, this is also before we had really, really good flight simulators Mm -hmm. that could actually depict all this stuff so they could try it out, learn all the systems. Nowadays, the manufacturers have such a... So much bigger hand in the training of pilots, differences, requirements. I mean, things still happen. <clears throat> but generally, things like this, it's so much, there's so much more simulation training, things like that, that it's not an issue. They found that Air Canada Operations and Engineering did not resolve the discussion and debate, which had been taking place for a long period of time prior to July 5th, 1970, among Air Canada pilots as to the proper time and place of arming or manual deployment of the ground spoilers on DC-8 series aircraft. So, there's two reasons that they think that the first officer did what he did. One, yeah, he was used to it on the old version of the DC-8. Two, in flying with this captain, the captain always wanted it to be deployed upon landing. So, he would do the full manual deployment. And he now would he was, deploy it on the ground. He would right. pull that lever. So, even in this case... When he finally got the pilot, the captain to basically compromise and arm on flare, flare, he the first officer was supposed to do the arming procedure that he wanted so bad and instead did what he was used to doing. Yep. He, re- he regressed. Yep. He deployed manually. Which is what I figured would happen because yep. if we're talking about this is deviating from what they normally did, I'm like, he did what he normally did right. and it screwed everything up. This right. is why standard operating procedures exist. Which is basically everything I'm about to talk about next, too. They found that the captain had adopted a procedure at variance with the instructions contained in the manual. When he was flying any other DC-8 series aircraft, he instructed the first officer not to arm the spoilers while the aircraft was in flight, but instead instructed them to cause the ground spoilers to be deployed when the aircraft was on the ground by manually pulling back the actuating lever. There you go. On that same thing, they found that on the day of this accident, July 5th, 1970, with the captain flying the aircraft, after discussion between himself and the first officer, the captain, in ordering the first officer to arm the ground spoilers while the aircraft was, quote, on the flare, end quote, in fact, ordered that a different routine be carried out by the first officer in causing these ground spoilers to be deployed. That is, a different routine from the one that the first officer had been accustomed to carrying out, rising out of the said compromise. Along with that, they found that the first officer in carrying out this order, through force of habit, did not follow the different routine, but on the contrary, he followed the routine he had become used to. That is, he pulled the actuating lever aft instead of merely lifting it. He did this when this aircraft was about 60 feet above runway 32 at Toronto International Airport. Everything that we just talked about in brief, that's everything they just said. Yep. He compromised with the captain, eventually the captain also compromised, but then he still did the force of habit, so... Whoops. 
Oops. They found that this aircraft struck runway 32 at a rate of descent beyond the design structural limits of this aircraft. Needless to say, an engine fell off. They said that had they... Which, I don't know if I left this one in here, but... I don't think I did. They said that basically if they had struck the ground at the rate of descent, the 24 feet per second, that would have been far more damaging to the airplane. The captain's action by increasing the thrust levers and pulling back... Gave them a small chance. It gave them a small chance, and it's actually what allowed them to go around. They said had they actually struck at the speed they were initially descending toward the runway before he did that, more than likely the airplane would have been damaged beyond flight. And that was kind of an... Like, that was an excellent uh, response time. It was an excellent response time. He was doing it as... Because he, he was kind of watching out of the corner of his eye, and he had this feeling that the first officer was going to... Screw up. So he already... I mean, he... he as was he ready. was supposed to, he was basically ready. So basically, as he was pulling the lever down, yeah. the captain was already increasing the throttles and pulling back. Yeah. Because he saw it was going to happen. So it was... That was kind of just an all-around ugly situation, but he saved the airplane potentially from catastrophic damage on the runway. However, arguably, I don't know if it would have been better for loss of life. Yeah. Because they would have been going at a slower rate of speed with an airplane that was actually on a runway already, though it would have been I mean, if pretty heavy landing. It's, if the plane had, if the engine had failed as it was supposed to, they would have been able to come back around. That too. Because they wouldn't have been leaking fuel. Right. Which was really what brought them down. Right. Which is kind of the next thing. They found that the number four engine pod and pylon of this aircraft after the initial touchdown with runway 32 did not separate from the aircraft sequentially, according to the manufacturer's philosophy. A fuel tank was ruptured and live electrical wiring was exposed, followed by fire and explosions and subsequent disintegration of the right wing. Question, by the way, mm -hmm. that I had during this is... Mm -hmm. Engine pod, normal vocabulary? Because I've of. never seen it before. Sort of. I mean, we just call it the engine. That's what I called it, so. But yeah, I mean, engine pod kind of makes sense because... It's the entire engine assembly. Right. Held by the pylon. Yeah. Which, in and of itself, yes, is kind of a pod. The engine is inside of there, but so are yeah. all of the other components associated with that engine. Right. I just didn't know if that was, like, what, what's conventional terms nowadays. Not really. Okay. It isn't to be said that that couldn't be used, but because also those engine cowlings and quote-unquote engine pods tend to be a separate device from the engine itself. The engine is contained inside of the pod. Okay. If that makes sense. But we just call it like the engine cowling and the engine fairings. So I think that's all the... You guys will get to hear more about engine cowlings in a future episode that we've already recorded. Yep. Yep. That is all the findings that I'm going to do. They had a section entitled Circumstances, and it's three pages long. Oh, good God. And I believe that that is what they intended as a probable cause, but this was flagged specifically as not being a probable cause. It's three pages long. How could it be a probable cause? Exactly. It is not ICAO compliant. Right. So they call it Circumstances, and here's their explanation of what it is. Within the meaning of the word, quote-unquote, circumstances of any accident. In Section 5A of the Aeronautics Act, Revised Status from, of Canada, 1952, Chapter 2, as amended, there were several contributing circumstances to this accident. Without attempting to wait or to list them in order of priority, they are set out hereunder 
and then they list them. So, and it's a three-page list. I'm not going to go through them all. No. But these are all the things they're like, these were all things that led to the accident and were deadly. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we can name the big ones without even reading it. Right. We don't need all this. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things on this list. The spoilers deployed and the engine fell off in a bad way. And then they tried doing a go-around, but then the go-around initiated a sequence where the wing basically fell apart and the other engine fell off, which caused the airplane to crash. Bottom line, engine was designed poorly. Spoilers, Spoilers were designed, designed poorly. poorly. And the procedure was crap. Good there, talk. There was no standard operating procedure. So, Or the in, standard operating procedure didn't highlight everything it needed to be highlighted. In place thereof of a probable, probable cause, cause, there you have it. We're not, I'm not going to go through the list because it is a lot repetitive and stupid. Yeah, unnecessary. But I'm going to go through the recommendations, and I'm going to do most of them, but Good, not all. There should I can think of many. Yeah, I'm sure this first one will ring a bell. They recommend that the ground spoilers of the type used in the DC-8 series of aircraft should be designed and constructed so that it is not possible for them to be deployed while in flight. Yeah. Based on the way that it's designed in this aircraft and the way that it's used in this aircraft, probably a good idea. On modern airplanes, we have to have it usable in flight. It's just about when in flight, how in flight, but it's so much smarter that we can actually do that. So it's not necessary to design it so that it won't function in flight. They recommend that in respect to the present series DC-8 aircraft now in use, at the minimum, a gate or an equivalent device, should be made part of the activating lever mechanism of the ground spoiler system to provide some safeguard against inadvertent or inappropriate deployment of the ground spoilers in flight. It's like when you're operating a computer program and you click something and it asks, are you sure? Right. <laughs> yes, There should I'm be sure. an, are you sure? <laughs> like when I process an invoice, one of our warnings is, the invoice date is 60 days before today. Are you sure you want to process it? I'm like, yes. Yep. Or it'll say the invoice date is after the invoice came in. Are you sure you want to? I'm like, yes, I entered the date correctly. I am sure. But sometimes I'm like, oh, crap, I'm not sure. Going back. There's a lot of similarities in this to the Britannia flight that we covered just a couple weeks ago. In that the spoilers were deployed when they weren't supposed to be, per se. As in, the spoilers were deployed in Britannia and then left up for 10 minutes. Yeah. Because he forgot. Yep. And there was no oral warning or obvious warning of this. Though that was fairly minor in retrospect. Yes, that didn't really ultimately lead to the accident in any way, shape, or form. In this case, it did. Obviously. It was the main thing that happened that had them having to go around anyway. Right. Moving along. They recommend that the manufacturer should review the design of the attachments of the engine pod to wing structure of this DC-8 series aircraft to ensure that a safe sequential separation under the subject overload conditions will take place according to its philosophy, and specifically consideration should be given to 1. The strengthening of the lower wing plating attachments, which constitute the floor of the number 4 alternate fuel tank, and 2. The development and incorporation of devices designed to enable the electrical conditions to separate in a manner which will not allow live electrical cables to trail in the path of escaping fuel in the event of an engine or pylon separation or partial separation. Pretty self-explanatory. It's everything we kind of talked about with the engine separating. Mind you, after the 63 series, they made the 70 series. Yes. Okay. And the 70 series had a whole different engine. Completely okay. different. 
Much more modern. Did they fix the spoiler problem? I'm sure they did some kind of retrofit. Something changed to the spoiler, as well as just some knowledge was passed around. <laughs> yeah, like, hey. A real knowledge? Don't do this. I'm sure there was a real study into how this affected things and how to prevent it. They recommend, as the method of disseminating vital information was ineffective, a better communication system between Air Canada's operations and engineering personnel on one side and the pilots and the ground school instructors of student pilots on the other side should be established to ensure that all flight safety information and instruction reaches all the pilots and ground school instructors at all times, and specifically that action should be taken to ensure that all pilots and ground school instructors of student pilots be fully informed of all features of the operation of the spoiler systems and their limitations on DC-8 series aircraft. Now, that being said, with modern times came this wonderful thing that wasn't as much uh, culturally of a thing as it is now, and that is whistleblowing. Yep. Yes. I'm not saying it's 100%, as history has shown very recently, but the system exists. Yes. So rather than all of these pilots that were just talking to each other and debating it with each other, someone could have said something... And to promote real change. Yeah. One last recommendation. As the evidence indicated that some Air Canada Czech pilots did not insist that certain Air Canada pilots adhere strictly to the operating procedures prescribed in Air Canada's DC-8 operating manual, that Air Canada take whatever steps are necessary to make certain that all its Czech pilots require that all pilots adhere strictly to the laid-down operating procedures for this type of aircraft as prescribed in the said manual. This so even Czech pilots didn't know what the hell was happening. Right. Well, and they weren't, like, forcing the pilots to listen to it. Like, they were like, yeah, it's a guidance. Here's my working knowledge of what you should do. And then each one of them had a different opinion. Don't do that. This is why CRM exists. That wasn't even a thing yet at the time. It wasn't even a thought. No. I mean, it was a thought, not Barely. an established one. This is basically saying that in a roundabout way. The other recommendations that I didn't really talk about were essentially similar things to Douglas, as well as to the Canadian, what do they call it there? The Ministry of Transport. Canada. In oversight. Canada. Of standard operating procedures, as well as any issues with certification of aircraft, like spoilers. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Okay, well, that was a lot. Sorry, not sorry. That is Air Canada Flight 621. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to do a post-episode on this episode, so if you want to hear that, you got to be a patron. Only a $5 patron to hear post-episodes, and there's post-episodes for almost all of our episodes. Yes, there are. So you can go and enjoy the hours of content we provide you. There's so much, my Some dear. of which I'm crying, so there's that. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's We're not it's, joking. No, no, it's unfortunately true. There, I what? mean, not a lot of There's that. occasionally therapy sessions. Yes. Like impromptu. There's also rants about certain documentaries. There's jokes. We got jokes. Got jokes. We got riddles. Got riddles. Uh, games, quizzes, interruptions by your local fur babies. All of that said, we also say that there's one for most of the episodes because some of the early ones we didn't do. And also, we have a batch coming up that we're not doing <laughs> post-episodes for. Yeah. Because if, so. if you didn't catch it, we're going to be on vacation. Yes, and that's just too much. We just have 
Too much. Too much. We can't keep up with everything now. I'm flailing. We're trying to give you at least the episodes. (laughs) Bare minimum. The normally scheduled things. So there you go. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at HardlandingsPod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at HardlandingsPodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.